finishing up our, our series, Frequently Asked Questions, and, and we're covering what was by far the most asked question. 21 out of the 46 questions submitted were this, is why does God allow evil and suffering in our world? And you, uh, just the question alone communicates that, uh, you know, the seriousness of it and, and how it's affected our lives. And so that's what we're going to attempt to tackle today uh, as a community together. So let's watch the promo video for Frequently Asked Questions. Just some examples of questions that you submitted either by texting or on the card that went into this category just so you get an idea of the nuance and some of the different experiences that people have and what's behind their questions so um, one person asks, why is there so much suffering in the world another person evil can be sneaky disguised what is the best way to recognize evil another one do we evolve as people or are we going to continue to not accept one group of people for the rest of time? Um, another person asked, and you can get the more personal nature of this question, how do I not lose myself when I'm parenting a special needs child who makes me question and lose myself? How do you find hope and strength when your life seems to be falling apart? Why did it take me so long to not struggle financially? Does anybody want to say amen to that one? Great question. Why is evil so prevalent and seemingly so much stronger than love? And then finally, does everything happen for a reason? And there were 21 questions total, but I just wanted to get, give you a sampling so you had an idea of where these questions were coming from. Why would God allow evil and suffering in the world? In philosophy, this is called the problem of evil, and it goes like this. If God is all good and God is all powerful, a good, all-powerful God would want to stop evil Evil exists, therefore God does not exist. That's the philosophical question. And it has been a problem for people of faith for hundreds of years now because it's a strong argument. A lot of, of, of Christians, I think, are not really aware how strong an argument this is, how big of a problem this is. And there are pastors who try to tackle it and give an easy answer, and it usually has something to do with free will, and that they leave it at that and, and uh, pretend that they've answered the question. But that's, it's not quite that easy. And so I want to acknowledge right off the bat that I wish I had a better answer to this question. I wish that there was some simple, uh, you know, one, you know, Twitterable, tweetable, whatever the correct phrase there, word there is, some, some answer that were simple and easy and neat and it would just answer this question. 
and it would take all of our pain away and we wouldn't have to ask this question anymore? Isn't it also true, we have to acknowledge that even if we did have an answer to this question, it wouldn't necessarily take all of our pain away. Isn't that true as well? Because there's a difference between intellectually grappling with why things happen and then dealing with the real you know, heart consequences and the pain of what has actually happened and the grief you know, from, the, from the suffering and evil in the world. So we also need to say that as we talk about this topic today, like several of the ones that we talked about here, that it's, it's obviously more than just an intellectual exercise. We're not just nerding out, although I would be glad to nerd out. I'm happy nerding out, but that's really not what we're doing here because this question, probably more than any other, speaks to what our real experience is in all of our lives. And um, I also want to acknowledge that if at some point you feel like, man, this is just kind of heavy, and I, I'm, there, I'm there with you because I don't, I don't know of any way to, to be happy, clappy, and jokey about a topic like this when, when uh, it, it affects us as deeply as it does. So just wanted to acknowledge those things off the bat and, uh, and dive in. Um, first, we're going to look at some beliefs about suffering that I think do more harm than good, some, some theological beliefs that we can have that can actually make suffering worse, that can cause suffering themselves. And then we're going to look at some various causes of suffering in our world and, and really think about them. Because all of us have the tendency to, to have our own view or to see something in a certain way, and we may never be challenged to see it any other way. And so I want to take a look at the causes of suffering quickly and then um, talk about our view of God and our view of Jesus, who Christians believe is God in the flesh. And maybe you're here and you're not quite sure what you believe about God or Jesus Christ. And for you, I would challenge you that this is going to be about more than religion or spirituality. We're, we're talking about life. And we're talking about your view of life today. How do you, how do you view life? And so that's where we're going to wrap up today. So we're just going to dive right in and talk about some beliefs regarding suffering. First of all... Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. If I say the word God and you think of anything having to do with God, you're doing theology. Theology is words about God, the study of God, thinking about God. So anytime we think about God or say anything about God at all, we're doing theology. And bad theology hurts people. And I want to look at a couple of examples of that. The first one is that, is that God is the cause of everything that happens. And the way of saying this is in our society, and people mean well when they say this, they're trying to be comforting, but they'll say something like, everything happens for, finish it with me. You're cheating because you saw it on the screen, but you know what we're talking about. Everything happens for a reason. And the idea is that God is behind everything that happens and somehow causes it or allows it to the extent that you could put the blame on God and and. Everything happens for a reason, and we're supposed to find out what that reason is, and that'll make everything better. Have you heard somebody say this before? Maybe a well-meaning person. Maybe, let's be honest, maybe we've said that to people before. Usually, it's meant from a positive standpoint. And I think that if giving people the benefit of the doubt, what they mean is you can take good out of a bad situation. I think probably that's what people mean by it. But what, what it can also communicate to people is that somehow God is the cause of suffering and evil in the world. So if a child gets very sick, then God has caused that somehow. And, and you can see how well, that, can, that, can get really, that can get really damaging pretty quickly. 
Um, Florida Atlantic University published a study in, founding in 2017. 144 police officers were killed in the line of duty. 1,000 active military personnel were killed. And 2,462 school-aged children were killed by gun violence in the U.S. And, and it, somebody said to me this morning, it seems like every Sunday we gather here, there's, like, there's been another mass shooting that we're praying for. We're praying for the victims of the latest mass shooting this week. And, of course, that happened again in Texas a few years ago when I gave a message like this about five years ago. The week before I gave the, the sermon, there was a story in the news where a little boy got a hold of a rifle that had been given to him as a gift. And let's see, he was five years old, and his parents gave him a 22 caliber rifle, and they left him unsupervised. And it was loaded, and he was with his two-year-old little sister. And he accidentally shot and killed her. And her name was Caroline Sparks, this two-year-old little girl. And the reporters who talked to this family uh, published what this family had to say about the tragedy. You know, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry this happened. What, what happened and how are you dealing with this? And the grandmother, uh, Linda is her name, she said, he just picked up the gun before he realized it. And I'm just quoting her. He picked up the gun before he realized it. Riddle said her granddaughter enjoyed singing and playing outdoors, and she loved her brother. It's just tragic, Uncle David Mann told the CNN affiliate. It's something that you can't prepare for. Riddle said she is devastated but comforted knowing that her granddaughter is in a better place. It was God's will. It was her time to go, I guess. She told WLEX, I just know she's in heaven right now, and I know she's in good hands with the Lord. And so I imagine that this, this grandmother and this uncle, they're grieving. And this horrible tragedy has happened. And, and there's, a, there's a little boy, a five-year-old boy, who has a rifle and shoots his little two-year-old sister with the rifle. And grandma says, it's just something you can't be prepared for. It was God's will. What do you think? Was it God's will that a five-year-old child be unsupervised with a rifle and that a little two-year-old girl was shot? Is that God's will? Do we say, well, God's the cause of everything? Well, I guess it was just her time. Everything happens for a reason. Or, or is there some theological belief there that, that, is, that is perhaps masking what actually happened? A little boy was left unsupervised with a gun. And his little sister was there. And it's not hard to put two and two together and, and see how this takes place. But when a tragedy happens, some of us jump to meaning making. And we just look at what happened and we instantly, we, humans are like this, we just want to make it mean something. And talk about what it means and ascribe it to God. And, and, and somehow, that yes, the grandmother was comforted by she's in a better place. But you know, this girl has just been, just been shot tragically. And... I would tend to think that, no, God didn't cause this to happen. God was not the cause of this. Um, it's not that everything happens for a reason. It was caused by human choice. Jesus actually addresses this in Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Pontius Pilate, who later presides over the crucifixion of Jesus, ordered his soldiers to kill a group of people while they were worshiping. It would be like, like soldiers coming in here and killing us while we're in a, in a worship service. And there were some people who, who came to Jesus and asked him about that. We're going to read the scripture on the screen. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. 
Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, killed them while they were worshiping. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think they deserved it somehow? Do you think somehow God caused this to happen because these people were worse than other people? That's what he's saying. Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he, he references another event that must have been in the popular consciousness, the news you know, of that time. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. That last line, unless you repent, you too will all perish, means everybody's in the same boat here. And so what they're coming to Jesus and asking is, first of all, is God the cause of these terrible things that happened? And the second bad theology statement that often causes more suffering is that somehow God is punishing people. When something painful happens, God is punishing them. God is getting back at them. In the ancient world, it was called the law of divine retribution, that I've done something and now God's going to get revenge on me. And they're coming to Jesus, asking Jesus about what happened and why it happened. They're trying to figure out the meaning, the meaning making about what caused this suffering. And Jesus says, well, do you think that the people who Pilate murdered were worse than anybody else? Do you think that they sinned worse than other people? He says, no. What are we left to think about that then? God is not the cause of Pilate murdering these people. Who's the cause of Pilate murdering these people? Pilate. And so in in an age where the law of divine retribution was just assumed that that's what God is like. God just, you know, God just wants to, God's got like an axe to grind. And and if something bad happens to you, if I get sick, if if, if misfortune comes, if I lose my job, if my child gets sick, whatever happens, man, is God getting back at me somehow? And Jesus says, do you think there were worse people than anybody else? No. Pilate had them killed. He's that kind of a guy. And they weren't the only people Pilate killed, and, and Jesus wasn't the only person crucified by Pilate. Pilate was a murderous leader. And then Jesus elaborates and I, I love this passage. I love that he goes further. And he says, he asked them a question, which is classic Jesus style. He says, what about the people you know, who the tower fell on? Those 18 people who I guess were standing underneath this large stone tower and blocks came crashing down on them and killed 18 people. This is just like a freak accident. And, and Jesus said, do you think those people were worse sinners than everybody else? Is that why the tower fell on them? Because God wanted to get back at them? He says no. He doesn't tell us what the cause was, but what would we infer then? It's not divine retribution, so it's faulty materials or you know, a faulty design, human error, or some, you know, some other thing that could be investigated. And we can find out the reason based on evidence why that tower fell. But Jesus says it's not because God was trying to get back at people. But bad theology hurts people. There was a, and I'll talk about this a little bit more uh, later. Some of you who have known me, you've heard me tell this story before. But before Hannah and I, my wife Hannah and I moved here from Ohio back in 2012, we had some friends who lost their, their six-year-old son after a battle with leukemia. He battled two years. So a third of his life was spent battling cancer. And we walked with him through that experience and went on visits to Children's Hospital. We were there when he died. Uh, I officiated his funeral. And that, that, 
you could only, I mean, you, there are no words, first of all, and you know that. And there's no way of describing even how that rocked the faith of people you know, who were around them, including mine. And, and what going through that was like. And this is, this is not a put on, this is not a pastor exaggerated story at the time. Because you know those exist, right? The pastor exaggerated stories. They do, so I have to make a disclaimer. I like to think I don't do that, but I hope not. But um, at the time, there was a pastor connected to this group of people. And I promise you, this is literally what he said. He said, I trust that God protects my children because I tithe. Promise. And there was a whole group of people who heard that. And just we all just wanted to just fall on the floor. And so that's, you know, and that's an example that everybody just, oh, how could somebody, like I got, I pay God so bad things don't happen to me. Like I bribe God and because I give, you know, I throw a little cash in, everything goes well in my life. And these parents who are going through the worst hell ever imaginable for anybody on this planet, now, now they're not just hurting, now they hear that. Bad theology hurts people. And so that's one reason why we've started this church. It's another, uh, another reason why we're, or it's a reason why we're starting the series uh, that we're going into uh, next week uh, called Making Sense of the Bible. And this is a shameless plug for that series because we want to be the kind of Christians who are thinking people. And we don't add insult to injury. We don't engage in bad theology when people are already, already suffering. And so we're going into this six-week series called Making Sense of the Bible. It's a, it's a study of a book by a pastor named uh, uh, Adam Hamilton. And uh, you can order this online because we're going to have uh, connect groups. You can sign up for a group. They last for six weeks. They start the week after this, so um, September 11th and September 12th, uh, Wednesday and Thursday night. Those two groups happen. You can sign up for one of them, whatever night works for you. Order this book online, Making Sense of the Bible. And if you sign up, the leader's going to email you the details and, and, and the reading, and uh, the sermons are going to coincide with that series as well. So for six weeks, the sermon, your reading, and the connect group are all going to reinforce the same material. And we're going to go through and, and look at what is the Bible, and how do I interpret it? How do I avoid bad theology, and how do I, how do I get to a view of God and a view of, of life that is actually good? Because we believe God is good. So I just really quickly want to show this promo video for Making Sense of the Bible that we're starting next week. Mark Twain once said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that really trouble me. It's all the things in the Bible that I do understand. That's what really troubles me. There are a significant number of people who, when they read it, are just troubled by what they find. And the Bible, which was meant to draw people to God, actually becomes a barrier for many people. It's not a lack of faith that leads us to wrestle with the Bible. It's because we have faith that when we find something that seems inconsistent with the character of God, that we wrestle with that. I hope when people are done reading this book that they have an appreciation for the historical context, the culture of Scripture, how the Bible was put together, um, who wrote it, why they wrote it, and, and then uh, how to make sense of its troubling passages so that they can read the Bible and they can hear God speaking through it. So Making Sense of the Bible starts next week. Love for you to get into a connect group and really dive in. But the sermons will coincide with the reading in the groups as well. And uh, you can sign up at the, uh, at the info uh, table. So bad theology hurts people. And theology comes from the way we read the Bible and the way, the way we think about God. So, all right, moving on. I want to I run through some various types of suffering, some causes of suffering. 
And I want to take a look at um, what we often believe about those types of suffering and uh, our, our view of them and how that affects our view of God. So Hurricane Dorian right now is a Cat 5 over the Bahamas where a lot of people are poor. And it's going to devastate. You know, if, if it hits the Bahamas, it's going to devastate these people. Like Puerto Rico was devastated by a hurricane. And we've got somebody here in our church who grew up in the Space Coast in Florida. And it, it could hit that area. And if not, it's going to go up into the Carolinas. And, and natural disasters cause real suffering. People lose their lives. They, they lose loved ones. They lose possessions. And these are something that obviously, you know, people ask, you know, why would God allow that to happen? Like I said earlier, I wish that I had a better answer. I wish that I had a neat, simple answer. One of the things that I look at, you know, in our, in our world is just how things fit together. As just somebody who wants to follow Jesus and is trying to figure out what I believe and what's important and how to view life. And one of the things you realize is that something like natural disasters, they're part of our world system. And, uh, you know, people who would jump to theology and say, well, God causes that or God doesn't stop the hurricane, you know, so why wouldn't God stop it or why wouldn't, or is God causing it? And I look at our world system and the way that it's set up, and I mean ecologically, and it appears to be from discovery that, that, uh, that for example, earthquakes, the, the plate tectonics and the movement in, in the earth's mantle and those same dynamics that cause earthquakes also create Earth's geomagnetic field that protects us from the sun's rays. So without our geomagnetic field, we're exposed to the sun, it's, we quickly develop cancer, and the geomagnetic field protects us from that. But the thing that causes the geomagnetic field, that movement within the Earth, also causes earthquakes. And so there, there's this... There's this perhaps process in my own life where I see something and I say, how could that happen? It's, there's so much suffering that gets caused by that. And then at the same time, you see the other side of that coin. Well, that earthquake, that whatever, it, that's a part of a system. And the same weather systems that bring beautiful weather. And, the, and of course, part of the ocean. And people love living by the beach. Those same systems bring hurricanes and volcanoes that are horribly destructive and can kill people have created Hawaii. And everybody said amen to that. Right? Because beauty is created by these destructive forces of nature. And, and you can bring it down to our experience. There's always pain before a child is born. And then you, when you fall in love with somebody in life, there's always this risk that they won't love you back or that they'll stop. And it just seems like in, in life, in our human experience, that there are painful things that happen and there are forces at work that cause pain. But then those same forces are tied to things that we enjoy and that bring us pleasure. And like I said, that's not an answer. That's not an answer to the problem of evil. But it just seems like that's, just, that's a truism about life. That the longer you go through life, and again, it goes back to perspective, and I look at this, this thing that happened, but was that connected to another thing that brought good in some other way? Or if I look back and that painful thing happened, had, had that not happened, then this awesome thing would not have happened. And then there seems to be, as we go through life, there's this, there's this process of just seeing that 
There's, there's light and darkness at work all the time. There's pain and there's, there's goodness and there's being uncomfortable and there's being comforted. And these, these experiences seem to be wrapped up in the same systems. Moral choice. Suffering and evil caused by moral choice. Far more common than natural disasters. Are types of suffering that are caused by choices that humans make. This, this past week, General James Mattis reminded us that the United States has been in the longest wars we've been in in our history in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've never been at war longer at any point in our nation's history than we, we are right now. And if, as you look throughout human history and in our history too, in America, it just seems like it's really one war after another, it's one conflict after another. It's estimated that 86,000 children in Yemen have died from starvation in a war with Saudi Arabia. And it's just a fact. Saudi Arabia is using weapons supplied by the United States. That's been going on now for, for months, a year or more. We don't even see a whole lot of news coverage in our country about that. Uh, our, our politicians have voted to condemn the war, to condemn the actions, to stop the weapons, and they just keep getting sent to the Saudis, and they use them on, on, on the Yemeni people. 86,000 pe- children starved. These aren't just the ones killed in violence. Starved because of the war. You could ask, why would God create a world where we can be at constant war? Why would God, why would God allow us to supply weapons? Why would God allow us to allow... 86,000 children to be starved. And so we do come to a point where human free will is a factor. When we talk about suffering and evil in the world, let's, let's make it more uncomfortable because that's just part of my charm. I didn't lose any sleep last night over those 86,000 kids, did you? And even in our own development as humans, we seem to be much more affected by something we see right in front of our face. If we, see, if we saw a child dying out on the sidewalk, we would all rush in to help. We would call 911. People would give water. We would, we would jump to action. But when it's removed, it seems it's somebody else's kids. It's, it's somewhere out there. It's not affecting my life. And that's just a part of who we are. But if, if you're one of those 86,000 kids, you don't see it that way. The rest of the world doesn't care about us so we could say, man, why would God allow that to happen? What would God's fair question be? Why would you allow that to happen? So there's a part of this discussion that makes us really uncomfortable because the truth is much of the evil in this world comes from human free will and moral choice and us choosing to hurt or just being apathetic to it, turning a blind eye to it. And there are people who really get, get angry at God and shake their fist. Why would you create a world like this? Why would you create humans where this kind of suffering is possible? Because if you're the creator, ultimately you're, you're still responsible for it. And I agree. I agree with that, by the way. And God, why would you do this? Why would you create life? And then how many of us realize if, if you're a parent you are totally disqualified from asking that question. You, we have, parents have no right 
to get angry at God. Why would you create a world like this and bring life into a world like this? Because what have we done if we're a parent? We have participated in God's creative act, and we have created life, haven't we? We've done the very same thing God did. God created the world. God created life, and, and we have, we've continued that. We have created life, and for most of us, of course, or all of us, we didn't think, huh, should I bring a child into this world, or knowing all the suffering that would happen, we just wanted to have sex. We weren't thinking even, you know, ahead to the kind of important, you know, the, the things and the suffering they would face and the evil in the world, but we've, we've done that. We've participated in God's creative act, so it's easy for us to be angry at God and blame God when we have actually created life knowing what the situation was as well. Finally, disease. And I struggle with this question probably the most, or this particular type of suffering the most. And knowing that medical science is a new thing, and much of the world doesn't have the same medical science we have right now. And so it's heartbreaking that disease does take so many lives and causes so much suffering. And I've asked many times, God, why would you, why disease, why would this happen? Why would you allow this child to suffer like this. And there are instances of divine healing in the Bible and we pray and doctors and nurses do everything they can. And there's so much suffering. There's not an easy answer to this question. And at the same time, the World Health Organization found that basically every year there are 650,000 deaths in the world, mostly to children, caused by malaria. And of course, what, what little insects cause malaria? They spread malaria, mosquitoes. So 650,000 children in the world every year die, mostly children, for lack of mosquito nets. And mosquitoes bite them while they sleep. 550,000 children, mostly children, die every year from diarrhea. Some microorganism, they get sick, and they just don't have the medical care to keep them from getting dehydrated. They, they die for lack of Pedialyte. Something ludicrous like that. In our time, lack of mosquito nets, lack of Pedialyte causes the death of you know, 1. Uh, 1 million children, mostly children, every year. And then, again, we can shake our fists and God says, why would you allow this to happen? And the truth is now, medical science is available. Humans have made so many advances that there are easy cures, easy preventions for much of this suffering. But what's the problem? Inequity in our world. Not having the money. Or when the natural disaster hits and people live in shanty towns. If a, if a hurricane hits, you know, a lot of buildings in Florida, you know, those buildings are fortified. They're, they're tough because there's money there. Somebody told me today, saw on the news, there was a line of yachts leaving Fort Lauderdale. And because whether you live or die in a natural disaster is often determined by how much money you have. Well, what does that go back to? Once again, moral choice. And the longer I wrestle with this question... I, I still don't have a good answer for, God, why would you allow this to happen? I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. But as I go throughout life, more and more, I feel compelled, 
morally compelled to turn that question back towards me. Ryan, why do you allow that to happen? And I think when we begin to ask that question, now we're getting closer to what it means to follow Jesus and the way that Jesus responds to suffering. The last point I want to make today, the story of Jesus does not give us a why suffering happens. It does give us a now what. It doesn't give us a why. We're not, we're not really told with one voice in scripture why suffering and evil occurs in this world. We, we read about Satan and spiritual forces and we live in the 21st century developed world and lots of people have questions about that. And, and in, this, in this case, here with Jesus' answer, he didn't really give an answer about why the tower fell. But the obvious implication was Pilate was responsible for what he did. But we're not given a why we're given and now what? What you have in scripture is the story of so many people walking through life and feeling the same kind of pain that you and I feel. You have the story of people losing loved ones. You have the story of people being victims of horrible injustice. You have the story of lives being taken. You have, and sometimes, I mean, just for absolute absurdity, evil, corruption, and the suffering that is caused by that. And then you have the story alongside those of how God is working in those situations. Of how God works to redeem suffering. Of how God en encounters evil and then does something with it. That, it, that, is, that brings some kind of good, if, if possible, whatever good is possible, God is somehow able to wring good out of that evil, out of that suffering. How did Jesus die? He was tortured to death. By, by the state, he was executed by a method of torture. According to the Gospel of John, his mother watched that happen. Mary was at the foot of the cross watching her son be tortured to death. I hope none of us can identify with that. There was a Catholic uh, uh, basilica, it was called, back in Ohio where, where we used to live, where I would go sometimes, it was nearby, and, and uh, this is a Protestant church, I'm a Protestant pastor, but I found it comforting. I found this Catholic Basilica comforting, and it was, it was called um, Our Lady of Consolation, and it was dedicated to Mary, and it's been, uh, it's opened, I think, in the 1880s or something like that, and people from all over the world make pilgrimages to this basilica, praying for divine healing, and when you walk inside the building, you smell the incense, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing building, it's beautiful, and you walk inside, and if you walk up towards the altar and, and to the right, there is a statue of Mary. And they believe that the statue, that God heals through the statue. It's kind of the belief in that area. And um, there's a plaque underneath that statue. And it says, see if any suffering is like unto my suffering. And it's as though Mary, suffering, watching her son be tortured to death, is able to identify with the suffering of people who come from all over the world to this basilica to pray for God's healing. And so people of all ages who have struggled with all kinds of diseases, and it's, it has uh, been a source of physical pain and emotional pain and, and social isolation, they come and they, they see that statue of Mary and they read the plaque, see if there is any suffering like unto my suffering. And perhaps they feel less alone.
that there is somebody who has suffered and can identify with me. I, I'm not alone in my suffering. And there, there are people who claim that they have been healed you know, by divine healing there. And of course, there are people who, who walk out the door the same way they came in physically. But maybe they have a different perspective. Because they're not the only, they're not the only people in the world who have ever suffered and they're not left to suffer alone. That there is somebody suffering with them. Jesus suffered. Isaiah chapter 53 is viewed as a prophecy by Christians about Jesus, and it's, the, it's called the suffering servant. That he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, in the old language. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Somehow that there, we're, we can identify with the suffering of Jesus, and somehow that is healing to us. And so we're not given a why. We're, we're not told why God would allow Jesus to be tor- tortured to death except for you know, salvation. But that's viewed as an outcome. That's viewed as, a, as something that God was doing out of a horrible, evil situation to bring good out of that. But when we suffer, we don't suffer alone. And the danger is, is that in what we believe about our suffering is if we begin to blame God for our suffering, and if you're not a believer, you could just substitute the word life there, and you blame life for your suffering, what starts to happen? Your view of God, your view of life, now comes back onto you. And it tends to take root as bitterness, as believing you really are alone. And nobody's suffered like I've suffered. And, and nobody, nobody cares about me. And because God doesn't, life doesn't, and I'm left to my own devices. So it seems to be what we believe about God, what we believe about life, comes back at us as well. And if we believe that God is good and, and Jesus suffered and he can suffer with us, well, that changes who I am as well and how I view life and how that affects me. C.S. Lewis lost his wife, and he reflected about that in, a, in his uh, book, A Grief Observed. And he writes about how suffering can threaten us to be so disappointed in God. It's not that we lose faith. It's that we cease to believe to believe that God is good and that life is good. And he writes, not that I am and think in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about God. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God's, God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. He says the danger isn't that I would stop believing the danger is that I would believe that God is not good, that God does not care for me, that God does not suffer with me. And some of us are angry at God. And if we're honest, we, ha- we have what a, an author named William Backus called your hidden rift with God. For some of us, it's not so hidden. Something happened and we feel anger over that. God, how could you let that happen? And again, if you're not really a believer, you could just substitute life there, the word life. And you say, life, how, how could that happen to me? How could you let that happen to me, life? And then that just comes back now. That belief comes back and it starts to affect who we are. So God doesn't give us a why, but he gives us a now what. And then finally, Jesus walks towards suffering. That's what we see in our faith. 
We don't see a good answer to the philosophical problem of evil, but we see that God in Jesus walks towards suffering to bring something good out of it wherever possible. One of my favorite scriptures, and I think, honestly, it's because of going throughout life and experiencing the difficulty of life that I find so much comfort in this. It's Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, not letting life defeat us, not becoming bitter, not giving up, but let us run, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, and this is the part I love the most, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Somehow, what a, what a bizarre phrase. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured suffering. For the joy that it would bring him, he walked towards suffering. What a strange thing to say. That's different than our view of suffering, isn't it? And evil in this world. But there's... there's Somehow Jesus saw some good that could be accomplished, something that brought him joy. And if I walk towards this suffering, it doesn't mean that you're a sadomasochist, but if I walk towards this suffering, somehow there is going to be some good that can come out of this. And, and there is going to be some joy. It doesn't mean that it's going to make it all go away and everything's fine and it wasn't really that big of a deal. That's crazy. It doesn't mean that. But there's something, there's some good that I can bring out of this. There's some, there's some joy that God can bring out of this suffering. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't run from it. I'm afraid of that, so I'm going to run. That's going to cause me pain, so I'm going to run. That's going to make me uncomfortable, so I'm going to run. That's often our perspective. He walked towards the suffering believing that some good would come out of suffering that was occurring in his life. I wonder, how would that affect you and I and our view of God, our view of life, the way we feel when we get up in the morning, if we started to move towards that view of suffering? It doesn't, I'm not excusing horrible things that happen. And the awful, painful things that have affected many of us in here, and some more than others. But what if there's some goodness? What if there's some joy? And the alternative is just to, like C.S. Lewis said, believe dreadful things about God and about life and shrink back and let it defeat us. What if the alternative to that is I walk towards the suffering and somehow we win? There's some joy there is some goodness. I want to close uh, with a, a blog post. It's written by uh, a doctor and a, a blogger and an author named Hashim Hasabala. Uh, he lives in Chicago, and uh, he writes for the Chicago Tribune and BeliefNet and other uh, outlets. He's a Muslim. He writes on faith and life, and he lost his daughter. And he wrote this blog post on a Father's Day a few years ago, reflecting on the loss of his daughter. And I just want you to listen to his view of God and life. He said, I reflected over all the anguish I felt learning my late daughter was diagnosed with a horrific crippling disorder. 
I reflected over all the difficult times we spent with her, all the times we had to carry her because she couldn't walk, all the times we spent up awake with her when she was sick, all the times we worried that she would become sick again. I reflected over the terrible dread I felt when we learned that she was diagnosed with lymphoma. I reflected over all the days we spent with her in the hospital, all the hours spent worrying about how she will tolerate the chemotherapy, all the hours we spent with her while she was undergoing procedures. I reflected over all the times we died seeing her suffer under the barbaric effects of the poisonous chemotherapy with which we allowed her to be infused. I reflected over the crushing pain I felt when I realized that she was going to die. I reflected over those last few moments we had with her on this earth. How my wife and I held her burning body in our arms as the septic shock ravaged her poor frail body. How the shock completely destroyed everything she had before. How my heart was completely destroyed as I watched them throw dirt over her beautiful pink and white casket. How my eyes have hardly dried ever since the day she died. How the pain of her loss continues to reverberate in my heart and soul each and every day. As I reflected over all these things, a natural question came to mind, one ever more relevant on this Father's Day. Would I do it again? If I had the chance, would I forget this whole father thing and never have had a child? Absolutely not. I would do it all over again. Despite all the pain and suffering of the quirks of our children, despite all the pain and torture of having to watch a child die before my eyes, I would do it all over again. I would have my children all over again. I would hold them in my arms all over again. Don't get me wrong. If I could have made it so that my daughter didn't get cancer, I would do it. But nevertheless, all those hours I spent with my late daughter in the hospital were precious to me. All those times we spent together in the hospital were some of the best times of my life. All the times I would get her a concoction of soda from the cafeteria were absolutely wonderful. I would not trade all those times we would spend together as I gave her the subcutaneous IgG for all the money and riches and fame in the world. Nope, I have no regrets whatsoever having my children. I would do it all over again. And this is a man who believes that life is good because God is good. And along with Jesus, in my view of Jesus, I would have to come to this conclusion with this man that it is better to have lived and to have suffered than to have never lived at all. And when we ask this question, God, why would you allow this to happen? How could you allow the suffering, the natural disasters, the disease? I wish I had a better answer to that question. But in my walk with God, however feeble it's been, and my understanding of what life is about and who God is and who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus, the choice we have to make is not figuring out a why. There doesn't seem to be a good one, but a now what? And Jesus walks toward the suffering, 
We don't suffer alone. See if there is any suffering like unto my suffering. We're going to take communion here in a moment. And we're going to reenact the suffering of Jesus and his mother and all of his friends and the disciples around him. And Jesus suffers with us and he walks towards suffering. He doesn't run away from it because somehow he believes there's some good that's going to come out of that. Some joy. And that doesn't mean happy, clappy, fake it, happiness. That means some kind of deep abiding peace and goodness can come out of any situation. And that it is better to have lived and to have suffered than to have never lived at all.